this lecture, we will go over the principles of pharmacology. Similar to the way we started with the intro to pathophysiology, we'll start by just defining this term in general. So the definition of pharmacology is the effects of drugs on the body, both therapeutic and adverse effects, as we'll talk about at the end, but also the effects of the body on those drugs. We tend to think of taking a medication only about the benefit that it gives us, but our body also has actions on it, which we'll talk about, such as the absorption and distribution of that drug, the metabolism and excretion of that drug. Now, because a lot of this content is a little bit dense, at certain times I've placed some sort of mildly entertaining vintage advertisements for medications that don't exist anymore, and you can probably guess why. For example, this one here is a medication containing both alcohol and opium that you might give to somebody who is an infant and even um, up to 25 drops when you're five years old. So let's go into a little bit more about defining what is a drug. The definition of a drug includes that it has some sort of biological response. It causes the body to do something, but it can't make the body do anything new, anything that it doesn't already know how to do. So there will be no new tissue or organ function imparted by taking this drug. And many drugs have multiple actions. For example, some drugs may be both a pain reliever and a fever reducer, as in the case of Tylenol or ibuprofen. And the way that these drugs impart their function is they interact somehow with receptors and enzymes. There is an exception to this, but I'll talk about that in a little bit. It, they have to have some sort of interaction in order to cause this biological response. Now, there are a lot of things that actually meet this definition. And so we ask ourselves sometimes, even things that we would not categorize the drug, is it really a drug? For example, does caffeine meet this definition? Yes, it does. Does alcohol meet this definition? Yes. Does nicotine meet this definition? Many herbal supplements also meet this definition. And so we would say, some of the definition of a drug is partly subjective or defined by culture or um, by regulations, for example, but there is a specific definition. Now, in terms of how drugs function, most of them have some sort of role, either to replace something that isn't working well, to interrupt a function that is currently happening, or to enhance a function to make it stronger or more productive. So as examples, a drug that might replace something that isn't in enough quantity, a drug called levodopa is used to increase or replace dopamine in Parkinson's patients because dopamine, a lack of it, insufficient amounts of it, is partly what leads to the tremors that individuals experience who have Parkinson's disease. In terms of interrupting a process that your body is doing, the category of beta blockers falls into this description.
And so you have beta receptors throughout your cardiovascular system. And so by blocking these, they're normally stimulated and increase heart rate. But by blocking these, we can reduce heart rate. So it's a treatment for cardiovascular disease. Or there's potentiation. And this is something that uses enzymes. So in cases like this, you might have um, an enzyme reaction, you are further catalyzing it or enhancing the reaction of an existing process, usually through some sort of um, enzyme reaction. Let's talk about how drugs are developed. Now, this is something that can take years. In the initial development phase, a company researches and figures out something that may be beneficial to treat a specific condition or disease. And so they may go through years and years of development. And when they finally come up with the final version, the chemical structure of that drug, then they seek a patent. And usually that patent lasts for about 20 years. But they don't automatically get to start marketing this drug once it receives a patent. It has to go through a very extensive FDA approval process before it can be used by the public. And this chart goes through a little bit of how that might work. So some of these initial studies are occurring without even using humans. So prior to even starting this FDA approval process, they're going to do what we call in vitro testing and then even animal models. And in those cases, they are looking for toxicity. They're looking to see, does the drug do what we had hoped it would do against the condition we're trying to treat? And so this isn't even part of the FDA approval process just yet. Once they've determined all of that and determined um, that they're ready to proceed with human trials, then they file a um, investigational new drug application. And at that point, they can begin to enter clinical trials. And in clinical trials, there are several phases. And the first phase is just a very small group of healthy volunteers. So in this case, you're not even trying to treat that condition you developed the drug for. You are just using this to look for, does it work in human subjects? Does it do what we are expecting it to do? We look at the pharmacokinetics and pharmacological effects, which is some terms we'll talk about here in a second. And so in this stage, we're looking at toxicity and dosage and making sure that this is safe to continue with the clinical trials. You get into phase two, and here we start looking for side effects. We use maybe several hundred patients, evaluate the effectiveness for the treatment in the particular disease or condition, and try to determine the metabolism. And then moving into phase three, we've got controlled and uncontrolled trials. So these are where you get into randomized. You might have a treatment group and a non-treatment group, and they are usually double-blind studies. So these are much more rigorous studies with usually a larger subject population. And in this case, we're looking for the overall risk and benefit profile. In other words, if there are some side effects or potential um, adverse reactions, does the benefit outweigh that? Is it a relatively small amount of side effects or adverse reactions? We're trying to gather additional information about the effectiveness and safety. And then this is what also allows us to make sure that any of that information you receive from the pharmacy um, contains educational material about the drug, making sure that your dosage interval and the dosage concentration is correct, 
and evaluating that among the population. So that could take years. And this particular graphic is showing it to be about six, but that varies. It could be shorter than that. It could be longer than that. It depends on the disease, the drug, lots of other variables. But then they finally get to file a new drug application. And again, you're still not ready to put it into marketing and distribution. That could take one to two years even after that new drug application for the final FDA approval. And during this process, your time is ticking on your patent. So this is kind of where um, some of the companies can lose time and how long that they can exclusively market this. Because once that patent is issued, that company gets to exclusively um, make and market that drug once it gets FDA approval. But at that point, once it's received approval, it can now be distributed. It is not until after the patent expires that other companies can begin to make and market that drug, but under a different name. So this is usually after that patent um, expires, you might be asked by a pharmacy, would you like the generic version is it, or is generic okay? And what this does is it reduces the cost to the consumer. So in the beginning, while it's under patent and it can only be made by that company, the cost is usually much higher. And once a generic version is available, it has to meet some pretty big criteria. So it has to be bioequivalent. And what this means is that the two preparations, the original patented version and the one being proposed by a new company, they must have a similar dosage form, which I'll tell you what that means here in a minute. Similar dosage form and bioavailability. Now, bioavailability has to do with how much of that drug is available. And that accounts for some various things that would take it out of circulation or metabolize it before it's actually available. So we'll talk a little more about what that means. But essentially, it needs to be pretty close to the original. And there may be some other inactive ingredients that are part of a generic drug version. But they need to have a similar dosage form, similar bioavailability, and therefore similar response in the individual when taken. But Insurance companies like this as well because they are more likely to cover a generic version of a drug if it's available because it is a reduced cost in terms of their reimbursement um, of that drug from the insurance company. So this is something to consider and maybe helps clear up some terminology you may have heard in the pharmacy or in the doctor's office because most likely if a generic version is available, unless your doctor requires that it be the original version, um, your insurance company and you yourself may prefer that because the cost will be lower. Let's talk a little bit more about drug names. So this is pretty critical to understanding and communicating drugs to other individuals and also to making sure that you're avoiding potential overdoses yourself because all drugs have multiple names. And this can be confusing at times. And there are several kinds of names depending on what they're referring to. All drugs have one chemical name. And this is based on what it looks like. It's chemical structure. All drugs have one generic name. And this is determined 
by that original patenting company. They give it a name that's much easier to say than the chemical name. So most likely you didn't wake up in the morning with a headache and say, oh my gosh, I really need a 2,4-isobutylphenylpropionic acid because that's just way too much to say. Most likely, instead of saying that, you said, I really need an ibuprofen. So this is the chemical name for ibuprofen. And usually the generic name, as I said, assigned by that company is lowercase, but they market it under some different trade name or brand name. And initially that's a proprietary name that that company gives it. So no one else can then use that brand name. And what you may know this ibuprofen better as by the brand names of Advil or Motrin, for example. And it's also possible that you could take multiple drugs each with their own chemical and generic name, and market them under one trade name or brand name drug. And an example of this is NyQuil. And there are multiple versions of NyQuil, but if you look at some of the standard versions, for example, they might have three different drugs within them. It might have acetaminophen for fever and pain. It might have dextromethorphan for cough and also doxylamine succinate, which is an antihistamine, all in the same preparation marketed under the brand name NyQuil. So this is where looking at the active ingredients on the back of the label on a drug can be really important because somebody who is unaware of how drugs can have multiple names could look at the back of Advil and say, oh, this isn't working enough. I'm going to add some Motrin, potentially not realizing that Advil and Motrin are actually the same thing. They're both ibuprofen, but they're just marketed under a different brand or trade name. So this is kind of an important thing to be aware of. It's also important to look at the active ingredients on a label because you would not want to take NyQuil, for example, that already contains acetaminophen and then add Tylenol on top of that. In fact, that's one of the leading causes of liver failure in the U.S. is inadvertently adding too much acetaminophen that is in preparations that aren't marketing it by that acetaminophen title on its own. Let's look at other ways that you might categorize, name, or classify drugs. Now, similar to having multiple names, um, there are multiple ways to classify a drug. You could classify it based on what it looks like, and this is its chemistry. So similar to its chemistry, um, chemical name, you might describe something as being in the steroid family because it has a steroid ring structure. You might categorize something as in the, the sulfa drug family. So that's a group of antibiotics that all contain a sulfur molecule. You could also categorize them by what they do. So in this case, that would be its mechanism of action. So I mentioned before beta blockers. So beta blockers do exactly that. They block beta receptors in the cardiovascular system. Or you have Sorry about that. You have protein pump inhibitors. Protein pumps inhibitors do exactly that. They block the protein pumps in the stomach that are normally producing acid. And so that can be used for people with acid reflux, for example. You can also classify drugs based on their legal ramifications. So here you see a difference between something that is a prescription, something that is over-the-counter. Now, an over-the-counter drug has to go through some pretty specific testing and approval by the FDA to indicate that you don't need a doctor's advice to take it. That, number one, it is safe enough to take with the individual consumer making the decision over what their symptoms are and what 
drug will treat those symptoms and also that the dosing is safe enough that we believe they can take it without a doctor's advice. Whereas a prescription either is because it is a substance that needs more control, such as controlled or scheduled drugs I'll talk about in just a second, or you won't know what you need to take until you see a doctor. And that's often the case with antibiotics, for example. Let's say you have a UTI. Well, you can't know which antibiotic to take until you determine which bacteria is causing the UTI because different bacteria are only treated with different types of antibiotics. They don't all work across the board for all types of bacteria. So it's important to use a doctor's advice, treatment, and testing results before you take a specific drug. And so there are multiple reasons something might be prescription. It also may be prescription in the beginning because it is a new drug and it is going to need um, some guidance in terms of its use. And eventually the drug may be available over the counter, such as was the case with Claritin, for example, in the beginning, where it was originally a prescription dog, drug and then eventually became over-the-counter through additional testing and approval. So I mentioned that sometimes a prescription drug needs to be that because it is a controlled substance. So this is another way to legally classify drugs. A controlled substance means that it has some potential for abuse. And so there are five different categories that describe the level of potential for abuse. And those are numbered from one to five, where one has the most potential for abuse, and three has the least abuse potential. So category one contains things like heroin, LSD, marijuana, which is actually the only one in the U.S. that does have approval for medical use in the Schedule 1 or Category 1 of controlled substances. Category 2 or Schedule 2 has things like methamphetamines, cocaine, which is not legally used for treatment, methadone, oxycodone, meperidine, um, Ritalin, fentanyl, those are all in Category 2. And then as you go down farther, you see things that have a little bit less um, abuse potential but still contain some sort of narcotic potentially. Things like Valium, Val, I'm sorry, Valium, Ativan, and then you get down into other ones that might have some very small amount of a narcotic. And so this has a lower potential than the one um, above it, but it's still something that you wouldn't just put over the counter, for example. Now, as far as um, how controlled substances and scheduled drugs are kept secure, they're actually logged in and out using a recording system. They are under lock and key in a pharmacy, for example. The person who has access to it has to have a DEA license, so that's part of the idea of it being controlled. It has to be prescription, and it's not just available to anyone to um, use and distribute. Let's now talk about getting into the meat of this lecture, pharmaceutical, pharmacokinetic, and pharmacodynamic phases of a drug. So this will go through all those things that your body does to the drug. And then at the end, we'll talk in the pharmacodynamic phase about what the drug is doing to you. So we start out with the pharmaceutical phase where the drug is broken down, and that it's where it's 
disintegrated and goes into solution. And this is dependent on something we'll talk about in a second, both the dosage form and the administration route. Then we enter the pharmacokinetic phase because after disintegration and dilution or dissolution, it's available for absorption into the body. It is then distributed throughout the body, eventually metabolized by the liver, and then excreted through the kidneys or feces. And then you finally get it available for action where you're going to have some sort of drug receptor or drug enzyme interaction so that you finally get an effect. So let's go through each of these in more detail. Let's start with the pharmaceutical phase. And one of the things that is important in the pharmaceutical phase is the dosage form because the dosage form will in indicate how easily that drug disintegrates. So let's take, for example, a drug that is a solid product. It is a tablet or a capsule. So it comes in a solid. So the compressed powder, in order to be put into solution, has to be broken down, and this is called disintegration. Once it is disintegrated, it can go into solution. So once that drug is in solution, it is then available for absorption. So these two parts of the pharmaceutical phase depend on whether it's a drug that, that drug is a solid or a liquid. So a tablet is just a compressed powder. And you've all seen these if you or had them probably, if they sit on your tongue for too long, they begin to um, disintegrate and they're bitter, as opposed to a capsule that usually has some sort of protective coating. In fact, sometimes called an enteric coating. And what these do is they allow them to pass more easily further into the GI tract before they start to break down. These also sometimes can be a protective coating that can be broken open. So you may see these with a gelatin or protective enteric coating that can be broken apart. And the powder is inside, which then could be mixed into applesauce or yogurt for those who have trouble swallowing tablets. So the drugs that are in a solid form have this extra stage. They need to be broken down. Whereas drugs that are a liquid, they're absorbed a little bit more quickly. A syrup is sort of a sugary liquid. An elixir is one that contains alcohol, so would need to be avoided in um, children or people who are sensitive to alcohol or alcoholics. And then a suspension is what you find quite often. This is what many children's drugs are. For example, children's Tylenol is a Tylenol suspension. And this is where they take a solid in its powder form and they suspend it in a liquid solution. And it's really important then that these are mixed well. That's because over time sitting on a shelf that solid may settle towards the bottom and if you were to take your dosage out of the top it would be um, much more dilute. So mixing it really well makes sure that the drug is evenly distributed throughout the liquid before you remove the dosage that you will be giving. Now an emulsion is when a drug is present in an oil solution. And you might say, why would you ever want to do that? Well, as I'll talk about in a second, some drugs are better absorbed if they are in a lipid-soluble 
format. And so that might be a case where you would use that. Now let's talk about the next part that's important to the pharmaceutical phase, and that is the route of administration. This also affects how quickly a drug gets into solution so it's available for absorption. Now there are multiple routes of administration, and they're usually divided as enteral and parenteral. So let's start with enteral administration. Enteral administration is just a fancy way to say that we're using the GI tract. In other words, we are going through the mouth, potentially, we are going somewhere through the intestines, potentially, or using some other component of the alimentary canal. So if we start out with an oral drug, this is, if you put a star here, the most common form. And this is because it's convenient, you could carry around pills in your purse, backpack, pocket. They're more safe, and that's because you have a little bit of extra time when you take this drug. If you take it and it happens to be an overdose, we could cause vomiting, and that would um, get that out of your system before it's absorbed. We could administer a charcoal um, substance that would bind it before it has a chance to be absorbed. It also happens to be cheap. So making a compressed powder tablet is actually a really convenient, low-cost way to make a particular drug. It also usually has pretty good absorption, but one of the caveats here when you take a drug orally is that it goes through the liver first, and as we'll talk about in a second, the liver is responsible for metabolizing a drug. So this is called the hepatic first pass effect. You might think that the things that you eat when they get to the small intestine, they're absorbed directly into the bloodstream. That is only partially true. That blood doesn't immediately get distributed through the body. It actually goes to the liver first. So when you have a drug or even other nutrients that you eat and they're absorbed from the small intestine, they go into the capillaries of the digestive tract, which actually empty into the hepatic portal vein, which then goes to the liver. And here is where you can get this hepatic first pass effect, which means that some of the drug will be inactivated right away before it even gets to where it's supposed to do its job. So as a result of this, an orally administered medication has to have a slightly higher dosage than parenteral forms because you have to account for the fact that part of that drug is actually going to be inactivated by the liver before it ever even gets into the systemic circulation. Part of it's going to go through the liver and be inactivated right away. Now I'll talk in a second about other forms that will bypass this, but even within the oral administration, there are a couple different places that you could possibly begin absorbing something. You could absorb in the stomach, but one of the issues here is that the pH is really low and there's actually a low surface area, as opposed to the small intestine, which has a little bit more neutral pH. It's usually about seven or eight, seven being neutral. And it has a really high surface area. Remember from your anatomy and physiology, you've got those villi, those finger-like projections that stick up into the lumen of the small intestine that increase surface area for absorption. And I'll talk about in a second, many drugs exist as an acid or base, so their absorption is dependent on the environment that they are in. Now, put a little note next to this one. Sublingual, which means under the tongue, or buccal administration, which is in the cheek, this has a more parenteral-like 
route of administration in the sense that it bypasses the liver. So in this case, you can get a more immediate effect than if you take it and swallow it. In other words, an oral administration. So even though it is in the mouth, much like this, this is applying that you're swallowing it and it is going through the stomach and intestine before absorption. Something that is administered sublingually or buccally, that is going to be absorbed directly into the bloodstream right there in the mouth, bypassing the liver and having a more immediate effect. So it falls under, under enteral administration, but it actually has more in common with parenteral routes of administration that also bypass the liver. Rectal administration is usually by suppository, and there might be a couple reasons you would do this. And this could be um, because you're trying to treat something locally there in the lower GI tract or because an individual does not have the ability to swallow. Either they're unconscious or they have poor swallowing ability. And so this could be another option for administering a medication still using um, enteral or the GI system. So I mentioned that parenteral routes of administration are a little bit different. So put a star by this. These are more rapid of an onset and they bypass the hepatic or liver first pass effect. So they actually have a slightly lower dosage because you don't have to account for the fact that a portion of it is inactivated by the liver before it even gets into circulation. These all go directly into circulation right away or directly into the tissue where you are trying to administer it. So let's go through some of these examples. So subcutaneous is under the skin. And as you can see here in this image, if you are putting something in subcutaneous, you have to go through those layers of the skin to that area just below. As opposed to intramuscular, you are actually giving it directly into the muscle. The one that needs a big star by it is intravenous. This is putting it directly into the vessel, into the circulation. This has an immediate effect. It bypasses the liver just as these other do, but it is directly in the bloodstream. So it begins its distribution immediately. There's really no absorption phase because it is distributed as soon as it gets into the bloodstream. So this is the fastest route of administration. These next two have more to do with cerebrospinal fluid, as I'll talk about in a second. The blood-brain um, barrier prevents certain things from crossing as a protective mechanism for the central nervous system, which means that if you need to deliver a drug to treat something in the central nervous system, you may have to bypass and put something directly into the central nervous system space. And there's a couple ways you might do this. Intrathecal is where you put it directly into the CSF. And when you put it directly into the CSF, it may even be slightly into the superficial part of the spinal cord. You're going to get an immediate effect there and delivering it past the blood-brain barrier. As opposed to epidural, usually you put in a catheter here and you are diffusing into the CSF from the dura, 
So right outside of where the CSF is. And these again are ones that are used, methods of administration that are used when you need to deliver that drug directly into the central nervous system space. Now finally here we've got some ones that don't really fall into these other categories. And that is because they, rather than being a systemic administration of some kind, either through the GI tract or parentally, so that we spread it throughout the body or in the central nervous system, here we are delivering it locally to a specific location. Intraarticular is putting a medication directly into the joint. And you might do this, for example, by if you um, have arthritis, you're putting a steroid directly into that joint. That joint space is not very vascular, and so putting it into the body in the systemic system won't quite get to where you need it to be in the joint. And topically is another one. This is an interesting one as well, because putting something topically would end up um, treating the skin, a skin condition. It can also be used in some cases to be absorbed through the skin into the circulation via a transdermal patch. And there are some medications that do this in, as well. One that some people are sometimes familiar with is a nicotine patch. So if you are trying to quit smoking um, and you're trying to sort of wean yourself off of nicotine, you could, rather than smoking, continue to receive a little bit of it and then just step down the amount of it by delivering it through a transdermal patch. Um, another one that is a local route of administration when you need to treat something directly in the lungs is a pulmonary route of administration. So if you are treating pulmonary tissue, let's say that you have um, asthma and you need to widen the airways, you would deliver the drug directly there through inhalation. This might be the way that you would give a breathing treatment for somebody with COPD, for example. The same kind of idea applies. Now, in your book, you have a nice table that goes through all of these and gives you a little bit more about the characteristics, time to onset, whether drug is lost because of the liver's first pass effect, and then some other advantages and disadvantages. So feel free to use that as a review. Now let's jump into the pharmacokinetic phase. So we just finished talking about the pharmaceutical phase, which is disintegration and dissolution dependent on the dosage form and the route of administration. We've got four components of the pharmacokinetic phase here. We've got absorption, distribution, biotransformation, which is a fancy way to say metabolism, and then excretion, which usually occurs through the kidneys via the urine or through the GI tract, usually through bile and putting that drug into the feces from the liver directly. So let's go through each one of these individually. Now absorption has a lot to do with the pH of the environment and some other factors. So here when we start talking about absorption, we have to keep in mind that all drugs exist as a weak acid or a weak base, which means that the solubility of them, and therefore the absorption, is going to depend on the pH of the environment that they are in. So a weak acid drug that is in an acidic environment is actually going to stay together it is going to remain non-ionized, or let's say it's not something that can split apart and then 
instead you could say nonpolar. Well, anything that is non-ionized or nonpolar is going to be lipid soluble. It actually will have the ability to go through the lipid membrane of the GI tract and into the bloodstream. As opposed to if that acid drug is in a basic pH, if it has the ability to ionize, it will. If it doesn't, it will remain polar and it will sort of not be repelled because there is a negative charge against it. It will um, not be able to cross through that lipid membrane. Let's look at the mirror image of that. What if it's a basic drug? A basic drug in basic media, it will stay together, remain non-ionized or non-polar, and it will be lipid soluble. So again, it will be able to cross through the lipid membrane. The opposite would be true if it was a basic drug in an acid environment. If it's ionizable, it will break apart, or if it's polar, it will still only be water soluble. So this dictates a little bit about how that absorption occurs, and it's also why there's a difference there in whether something can be absorbed in the stomach versus in the small intestine. So these kind of all go together, as you can see there in that image. Now, we can also look at other possible ways. So just because something is ionized or polar versus non-ionized and non-polar, you do have some other ways to get transported across the membranes of a cell if the pH isn't quite right. One of those is specifically a membrane opening. So as you see here in this part of the picture, in some cases there is an actual place for that drug to get through the cell naturally as a membrane opening. So it would go through from the lumen of the GI tract here into the interstitium by going through some membrane channel. Now it could also just diffuse across naturally. So in diffusing across naturally, that's what you see here. It could be either in between the cells, in between those endothelial cells that line the lumen of the GI tract and the capillaries, or it could even potentially go through them depending on what that drug is and its ability to be um, absorbed through without any repelling from being polar or ionized. Active transport, on the other hand, uses ATP or energy. And in those cases, it is going to have to go through and use ATP and often in those cases is sort of let through on the other side after being sort of absorbed within the cell, almost as a vacuole that travels across. Now, Sometimes we can predict a little bit about how that absorption is affected. And this sort of makes sense if you think about it. Absorption is affected by the surface. So we could think about this both in terms of surface area and the thickness of that, of that surface. So the skin, for example, has like seven layers versus the GI endothelium only has one, right? Or surface area, if we talk about the stomach versus the small intestine. The stomach has a relatively small surface area, whereas the stomach, I'm sorry, the small intestine has a large surface area. Blood flow can be part of this, and this will come up in a little bit at the end of the lecture when I start talking about the effects of exercise on the ability of a drug to be absorbed and distributed. So skin and muscle get more blood flow during exercise, whereas the stomach gets less. Solubility, we just talked about this, whether something is lipid or water soluble, not only affects its absorption, but we'll find out here in a little bit, also affects its excretion. The absorption depends on the environment, so that pH, stomach versus small intestine, really low pH versus something more neutral or slightly basic. The concentration, so the dosage amount, the bioavailability, in other words, how much might have been um, inactivated here by um, the liver 
or have been in concentration um, directly into the intramuscular system and now needs to be absorbed into the bloodstream. And then the form, is it a liquid which might be absorbed faster or a tablet which has to go through a dissolution before and disintegration before it can really get absorbed. So what about when we're finally ready for distribution? Again, this has a few predictable things that attribute or that could contribute. The physical size, surface area, body weight of an individual. It may take longer to be distributed throughout the body in somebody who is morbidly obese as compared to somebody who is underweight or emaciated or a child. There are some barriers that we can predictably say may affect the distribution of a drug. One of them, for example, is the blood-brain barrier. So the blood-brain barrier, as I mentioned before, is this protective thing in the brain that helps keep unwanted things from crossing into and causing issues in the brain. Now, normally, your endothelial cells that line your blood vessels have little gaps between them. And as I showed you a little bit ago, it's possible a drug could go in between those cells in order to go from the GI tract and into the bloodstream or from the bloodstream out into the tissues. So in this case, when we're talking about if this here is the blood, if this was a blood vessel right here, if in the rest of the body you've got these little spaces in between your endothelial cells, in the, blood, in the brain, you don't. You have something called a tight junction. What that means is if there is a drug somewhere in this um, in the blood that it needs to get across, it is either going to have to go directly through the cell or have some other form of active transport through that blood um, or through the endothelial membrane so that it can actually enter into the, the central nervous system space. And so this is a protective Thing, which is why we do have some routes of administration that bypass the blood-brain barrier. Otherwise, it, that drug may never be able to get there. The placenta also is a some sort of barrier. The issue with the placenta is it's not selective the way that the blood-brain barrier is and therefore not necessarily protective for the fetus. And for this reason, there's a chart that... Um, physicians may use when prescribing medication to a pregnant mother. Because while it's not ethical to do a bunch of studies by giving pregnant women drugs just to see how it affects the fetus, there have been enough cases over time where a woman needed to take a drug, either for her own treatment or for the fetus. And so in those cases, they did study it because it was otherwise going to affect her life or the fetus's life. And in those cases, they document, did it pass through? Did it have any effect? And so those are used to make those decisions since this is not a selective or protective barrier the way that the blood-brain barrier is. So you can have some drugs passing to the fetus. We've also got this thing called drug reservoirs. So just because something is absorbed doesn't mean all of it is going to be distributed. In fact, there is this protein in the plasma called albumin. kind of acts like a taxi driver. Um, it kind of carries things around. And albumin has these receptors and little spots on the outside that it can carry things around. And one of the things that it can pick up and carry is drugs. Now, here's a pretty important thing to realize. If a drug is bound to albumin, it's not active. It can't go out into the bloodstream and can't have an effect. Whereas if the drug is free and unattached, it then can have an effect. It can be active. So it almost acts as a buffer system. So when you take a drug, portion of that concentration of the drug will be, in, if it's an oral drug, inactivated by the liver. 
and you'll have a portion of that drug that attaches itself to albumin. So all these little albumin particles in the bloodstream will hold on to these drug particles. And as they begin to diffuse out, then these will pop off to replace it. So this is one of the reasons, for example, a drug may last four to six hours, because in the beginning, a certain portion of it is bound to albumin. And as you begin to use it in the tissues, you will pop some off that will then be able to go out and have an effect to replace what has now been used and metabolized in the body. You do have some other um, tissues that could bind drugs, and this depends on the drug. Certain drugs, for example, may have an affinity for fat tissue. Others may have an affinity for certain minerals. And an example of this is tetracycline. It is an antibiotic that has an affinity for calcium. And in fact, it's not recommended to be given in children because if their teeth are still developing, it could cause spots on the teeth where the tetracycline has become bound to the calcium. It also binds in the bone, but that's not something visible that could change you know, um, the aesthetics of an individual. So let's talk now about these last two parts, metabolism and excretion. So metabolism, we've actually talked a little bit about this already. I'm not going to go into explicit detail about the you know, biochemical processes that occur with metabolism, but know that it happens in the liver. And in the case of an oral medication, you are going to have some of that metabolism occurring before it even gets into circulation. That's called the hepatic first pass. Now, when you're ready to excrete some, the clearance of this drug usually happens either through the kidneys with water-soluble drugs or through the bile with lipid-soluble drugs. So you can kind of see that represented here. If you have a polar drug um, or ionized drug that is water-soluble, here in the glomerulus, in the um, kidneys, you're going to have those able to cross from the bloodstream into, this is the urinary space or the tubules. And here, they have to be water-soluble in order for those to make it. Whereas your lipid-soluble drugs, they're going to sort of stay in here and they may possibly be able to continue through and then be excreted into the bile in the liver and then out through the feces in the GI tract. So that's some possible ways that you may excrete a drug. Okay, finally, we get to talk about where, how a drug has its actual effect. So we talked about the pharmaceutical phase, disintegration and dissolution based on the dosage form and route of administration. We talked about the pharmacokinetic phase where our body does all these things with it, absorbs it, distributes it, metabolizes it, and excretes it. Well, ideally, before you've completely metabolized and excretes it, it has its action. It has its mechanism of action. And describing the mechanism of action of a drug is when you say how it works. And the way that the drug works is it somehow alters the cellular environment or cellular function. And that usually occurs by interacting somehow with a receptor or interacting somehow with an enzyme. And you could re react with a receptor by binding with it. So here's an endogenous ligand, in other words, something that is naturally occurring that's supposed to bind with this receptor. This drug could function as a mirror image of that. So it could activate this receptor by pretending, so to speak, to be this original thing in your body. And then you get the same effect as if it was naturally occurring. So it has an active site very similar in shape to something that normally binds with that receptor. Or you could, so in this case, it binds with 
and activates that receptor. As opposed to here, an antagonist will actually block the receptor. So it may be similar enough that it can fit, but it doesn't completely match, therefore it will not activate it. So in this case, it essentially produces no effect and keeps the endogenous ones from being able to activate that receptor because it blocks them. So this, for example, would be how beta blockers work. You do have endogenous beta receptors. And so rather than stimulating those beta receptors with an endogenous beta, endogenous beta ligand, instead you would block it so that you're getting a reduced effect of the heart rate increase. Now with an enzyme, it's a similar idea, but rather than a receptor on the surface of a cell, you're interacting directly with an enzyme protein. And enzymes, part of their role is to catalyze a reaction. So in this case, by binding with the enzyme, if, again, it looks similar to the endogenous ligand, it would catalyze that reaction. Whereas if it what the drug was an antagonist and it looked similar enough but didn't stimulate the the enzyme, then it would block the reaction normally performed by that enzyme. Now there are some cases where it doesn't interact either with a receptor or an enzyme. And this might be um, a, what's called a nonspecific interaction that instead perhaps changes the environment. And a really easy example of this is antacids. So, sorry, antacids they just change the pH of your stomach and they're not necessarily going to stop acid production. They are just, you are literally taking something that changes the pH of the fluid in the stomach. Um, another one might be ointments, a skin ointment that serves as a protective barrier against other things that irritate it. In that case, it's not actually doing anything to the cells. It's just a protective layer that moisturizes and protects it. So these are non-specific interactions, things that might help. There is um, some more information in the module, some animations and things that help you to picture some of this a little bit better. Now let's look at what's actually happening in the body because you take a drug, it's not like all of it goes to the right place and all of it works right away, right? So we need to look a little bit at what's about what's happening in the plasma itself. And one of the ways you can do this is do what's called a plasma level profile. This is a graph of drug concentration in the bloodstream or plasma over time. And what this does is it tells us about the therapeutic range. In other words, what is the minimum effective concentration, what's called the MEC? What is the toxic level of this drug? And we also can use this to figure out a little bit about the dose-response relationship. And the idea of a dose-response relationship is that as the concentration goes up, the response increases as well. And I'll talk about why knowing a little bit about a dose response curve is important here in just a minute. Now, as I said, you have a portion of drugs, particularly oral drugs, that are inactivated right after you take them through the liver before they get into circulation. Well, in general, there's other ways that we can also look at how long drugs are in the system by looking at their half-life. So this is the time that it takes for half of the drug to be inactivated, right? And so this would be through metabolism of that drug, excretion of that drug, but something else that goes along with this is looking at the bioavailability. So 
This would tell you how much of the drug is available for use by the tissue and cells. And that might be because of the half-life of the drug, how much is available because of tissue binding. Remember, if something is bound to protein or tissue, then it's not active or available. What about metabolism? So there's these things that also affect the bioavailability. So you might take a certain dosage, but that exact concentration in your bloodstream may not all be available because some of it may be bound or metabolized. So let's see what this actually looks like. This is a graph of one dose of a medication and how it looks in the plasma. So this is the time when you took the drug. And then we track over time the plasma concentration of that drug. So it slowly increases as you're absorbing the drug. You're absorbing it at a greater rate than you're excreting it here at this point. But you're not really feeling anything just yet. You may not begin to feel anything until, let's say, 15 minutes after you take that drug. Right? Let's say you're taking Tylenol for a headache. You may not feel anything until 15, 20 minutes later, half an hour, who knows. And that's because during that time it's still being absorbed and distributed and it hasn't yet met the minimum effective concentration. Once it reaches the minimum effective concentration in the bloodstream, now you, it's going to continue to rise in concentration and you're going to continue to feel its effects. But at some point it reaches, reaches a peak. And here when it reaches that peak in the bloodstream, you begin to excrete it, metabolize and excrete it at a greater rate than you are absorbing and distributing it. And so the concentration in the bloodstream then drops. But you'll continue to feel its effects because you're still within the therapeutic range. You're still above the minimum effective concentration. At some point though, in the case of Tylenol, it might be around four to six hours, depending on the person it be drops below the minimum effective concentration. Now ideally, you are taking that medication and not getting so high in the concentration that you get into the minimum toxic concentration. That's what MTC stands for. So the therapeutic range is that difference between the minimum effective dose or concentration and the minimum toxic concentration. And the amount of time that you're actually feeling its effects is the duration of action. So that's the point at which it gets above the minimum effective concentration until it drops below that minimum effective concentration. And this is part of what determines your dosing interval. So your dosing interval in the case of Tylenol is four to six hours. So what that does is it tells you that if you need to maintain the pain relief that you're taking this Tylenol for, you need to take that next dose somewhere in here so that its concentration rises and crosses the original dose path above the minimum effective concentration so that you're really not feeling a decrease in that pain relief. So this is what that would look like. So you would take that second dose then, and this this is A is the first curve we just looked at. B is the curve we're trying to avoid where it's so high it gets into the toxic region. But at some point here, if you're taking multiple doses, you don't see a flat curve once you take it. You're actually getting a rising and fall of the concentration of that medication in your blood as you take each dose over time. Now, 
as you go through the various dose numbers, you may notice here in this graph at least, that first dose hasn't gotten above that minimum effective concentration just yet. And that's because in the case for some drugs anyway, it may have a high binding to a protein, for example. And so the first dose that you take may actually be taken up by tissue binding, protein binding, some of it's metabolized, and so it may not quite get up there. And so it takes the second dose for you to finally get above the minimum effective concentration. And so some drugs by research, they were able to determine that if you needed to get up into this therapeutic window or therapeutic range right away, you need to give that first dose in a higher amount. So it saturates the receptors on albumin, for example, and then any leftover can now be active. So in that case, you might have a loading dose of a medication. So this happens, for example, if you've ever taken z pack the first day you take two pills, the other days you take one, or you can do this with Aleve, for example. Um, Aleve is one where you can take two doses within the first 12 hours, then one dose or one pill each time after that. And so that loading dose is a higher initial concentration with the hope that you are getting it in to the therapeutic range much more quickly. Whereas if you were only taking maintenance doses, so the same dose every time, it might take a while for you to saturate those binding protein spots until eventually you've now got a rhythm set down for the concentration that rises and falls with each dose. Whereas this maintenance dose later on here, this steady state is achieved faster in the case of a um, initial loading dose because you were able to get into the therapeutic range above that minimum effective concentration by saturating things right away. So what about this toxic region? So there are lots of things that affect that absorption and distribution. And we've got to look a little bit about how we would designate a drug, and this all happens in research before FDA approval, about how we would designate that um, we need to be careful of a particular drug um, because it is more likely to get into that toxic range depending on various variables that might um, come into play with different patients. So there's two things to learn about here that are often used to describe the relative safety of a drug. One is called the therapeutic index. And so when they do all those studies with lots of different people and they measure the concentration um, of the drug in the blood of, of patients over time, they start to graph things out and find what's called a therapeutic index. And the therapeutic index is a ratio of taking the lethal dose in the middle 50% of the population over the effective dose in the middle 50 of the population. So what you would see here is some sort of number. And that number, the closer to one that ratio is, the less safe, in other words, more risk of toxicity. For me, I'm a visual learner, it's a little bit easier for me to see this. So let's take a graph of the individuals and the effective dose. So here we had, um, these are the number of individuals that were in my study. And these are the concentrations that I gave of this drug. So the middle 
This was the top of my curve. These were the dosages for this drug that were effective for all of these people. Here are the dosages, and let's, we're not giving a lethal dose, but let's say in the animal model, these were the dosages that were used that produced a lethal response. You can see here that this in no way it overlaps. The ratio here or therapeutic index for this drug is four. It's not that close to, two, to one. And that is because these curves don't overlap with each other. That means even if I'm up here at the highest possible effective dose, I am still a good 10 milligrams away in the dosage that was the lowest lethal dose. That gives me a little bit of reassurance that it is more safe. As opposed to, if you look at this one, if we have our population of people who took between 0 and 20 milligrams of the drug, that was effective for this curve. But turns out that people who took 10 to 30, some of those were toxic. So here in the middle, these curves overlap a little bit, which means let's say I was taking 15 milligrams. There's a possibility I'm part of this group and it was an effective dose. There's also a possibility that I took 15 grams, but I'm in this group as part of this curve because for me it was lethal. So you can see here when they overlap, that means there's a section here that could go either way. And you can see the therapeutic index for this particular drug is two. So it is closer to one. And therefore that tells me that if I was gonna choose, this is a safer drug than this one if I have the two. That doesn't mean I can't use a drug that has a high therapeutic index. Um, or that has a, a, a therapeutic index that indicates it's more toxic. In this case, I may have to just draw blood periodically and check for the toxic levels of that drug. And this happens sometimes with certain drugs, for example, Accutane, the acne drug. Um, often you have to have blood drawn for that to check for your liver function. And that's because it does have a potential toxicity. And so by monitoring liver function with that drug, we can actually determine if you're in a good range or if we need to reduce the concentration or dosage of that drug so that you can hopefully be out here instead of in this range and potentially have toxicity. Now, unfortunately, the therapeutic index is affected a little bit by the dose response curve. So remember me saying that as a dose is given and as the dosage increases, the response increases, that's a dose response curve. Well, if that curve is really steep, that's gonna affect this therapeutic index ratio. And so sometimes we may use something called margin of safety. And what margin of safety does is it takes the toxic dose in 1%, so rather than this 50% stuff, we're taking the toxic dose in 1% and comparing it to or making a ratio of it with the effective dose in 99% right here. So the toxic dose in 1% divided by the effective dose in 99%. And what's great about this is it's less affected by the slope of that dose response curve. So as you can see here, so if this is my toxic dose curve, this red one, and this is my effective dose curve, here, even if I make the dosage between 20 and 40 milligrams as a range, even if I use that, all of this shaded area is still below the 50% threshold. It is still below this 50% threshold for the toxic dose. That again is a good margin of safety. That tells me that in order to have a toxic dose of this drug, 
I would have to be way up here at the top of the effective dose curve. So most likely, as long as I'm keeping the dosage within this range, then I'm not going to be seeing this same issue where potentially it overlaps with a toxic dose. That's the thing here. We don't want an effective dose overlapping with a potential toxic dose. And so these are just ways mathematically to represent that and give us an idea of the relative safety of a drug. Now, what about drug interactions? So drug interactions can occur with other drugs, with herbals, with foods. Sorry, that got cut off there. And it could be something predictable or unpredictable. And it could be something that it, a, one particular drug alters an enzyme and that either increases or decreases the function of that enzyme. And it turns out a second drug that you take needs that enzyme to function. Or it could be something that we've already discussed in terms of protein binding. So remember this image about how albumin likes to carry around drugs? So let's say we have drug A that's attached to albumin. And now all of a sudden I add, sorry about that. Now I add drug B, which I'm going to use as a red dot. So now that I have drug B, some of this albumin, what if drug B has a higher affinity? So what if B binds more strongly? What it will do is once you start taking drug B, it will begin to take the place of A and it will kick A off. And now you have a whole bunch of free drug A that is in a higher quantity than it was originally. So here we've got drug B bound to albumin and the A that used to be there is now free. And because it's in a higher quantity, it's possible that now it is in a more toxic range because previously it wasn't free and active because it was previously bound to albumin. So that's one way that protein binding can actually be affected by taking two drugs at once. So this is again something you would um, check with a physician or pharmacologist or um, your pharmacist to determine if that's a possibility. Another thing that's an issue potentially is that the excretion through the kidney or the liver is affected um, through bile or the absorption is affected. As an example here, many drugs may tell you not to take it with an antacid. And that's because, remember I said drugs are pH dependent on how they're absorbed because they're in an uh, acid or base environment. So taking an antacid is obviously going to change the pH in the environment where you would normally absorb that drug. And so that's gonna make a difference. Now, sometimes interactions may be positive. We don't often think of it that way. Some interactions are additive, so they really aren't any different. One plus one equals two. Well, that's what we would expect. Some, on the other hand, can be used to our advantage, and that's called a synergistic interaction. In this case, taking two drugs together actually has a greater effect. It would be like saying one plus one equals four. And in this case, what's great about this, an example here is Tylenol with codeine. So this is a pain reliever. And let's say you have a significant amount of pain. And in order to keep from having to take a greater narcotic amount, codeine is a narcotic, it turns out combining Tylenol and codeine produces a greater effect than each of them alone. And by doing that, we avoid having to take higher quantities of a narcotic pain reliever and just very small amounts of this narcotic because the Tylenol added with it 
produces greater pain relief. So that's actually an advantage that we can use for an interaction here. However, there are some times when an interaction between two drugs is antagonistic. Taking them together weakens the reaction or makes it less. An example here is beta blockers and albuterol. So beta blockers obviously block beta receptors, whereas asthma treatment, albuterol, actually tries to open your, um, your lung function, and they happen to use a different form of a beta blocker. So here, if you're taking a beta blocker and you end up blocking some of the beta receptors, you may not get the same effect from these if they were taken separately because they are both competing for beta receptors here. They happen to ideally be a different beta receptor, but they are gonna potentially interact here producing a lessened um, reaction. So the other thing that we have to look at is potential side effects. And the correct term for side effects here is adverse drug responses. And that is because it's not just side effects under this umbrella. ADRs also incorporates possible allergic reactions or organ cytotoxicity. Sometimes we can predict when there might be side effects. The very young or the very old may have more side effects. Somebody who's underweight may have more side effects than somebody who's overweight. Um, gender, we could have interactions with hormones, for example, in females. Um, environment, what if it is something that is oxygen dependent and we are living in Denver, for example. Some, some cases, the time of administration makes a difference. Day or night, so if there's diurnal variation or circadian rhythm changes. Or what about with or without a meal? We don't want it to interact, for example, with something in your meal. Um, what about pathological state? This can be a little bit predictable as well. If you have kidney or liver damage because of disease, then this could increase your side effects or adverse drug responses. There are genetic factors, and sometimes you don't even know this until it occurs. It just so happens that due to your genetics, you happen to make fewer of a certain receptor. This happens in pain relief. There are some people who have a different amount of pain relief receptors, and so they may need more pain medication than another individual, or even psychological factors. Your emotional state can affect, um, actually speaking of pain, your emotional state can affect your perception of pain. You can even have a placebo effect where you think you're getting treatment and so you, you feel better even though the, the concentration of that drug may be less than somebody else. Now, allergic reactions and toxicity, I'm not going to go into a ton here, and that's because we have a whole entire um, lecture on the immune system where we'll go into various types of immune reactions, and they could range from something minor like a rash all the way up to something more lethal like anaphylaxis. Cytotoxicity, again, sort of predictable. One of the issues with this here, though, is if a drug has some cytotoxicity, that could become permanent. So permanent damage to the liver or kidneys could be something that's obviously going to affect future metabolism and excretion of other drugs and then also have some pathologic effects just for even day-to-day -day function even when drugs aren't being taken. The final thing I want to talk about here is how exercise affects pharmacology. And there's really two big things to remember here. When you're exercising, you have a change in blood flow. Blood moves to the surface of the skin to help with heat loss. It also moves to the muscles for obvious reasons. 
to make sure that that tissue has sufficient oxygen and nutrition. And so if you are taking an oral medication, then you're going to see a decrease in the blood flow to the GI system. So you can take some of this information to your advantage in deciding when to take a medication. So let's say you're taking an oral drug. You might want to make sure you take that oral drug an hour before exercise so that it has time to be um, absorbed and distributed throughout the body. Let's say you have, you're a PT and you have a patient who is in pain and they're recovering from a joint replacement and you need to do PT with them, encourage them to take that medication early enough it can get into their system. If they take it right before their PT session, as blood begins to move away from the digestive system and out to the skin and muscles, they're not going to have an effective absorption um, into the bloodstream because the GI tract is not getting as much blood flow. Now, what about if we're trying to um, affect a muscle or skin drug? So remember, we have intramuscular routes of administration or um, dermal routes of administration. Because you have some vasodilation in the skin, helping with heat loss. What if you have a analgesic that was injected directly or on the surface of the skin right at a sore muscle? Well, if you put an ice pack on it, that's going to keep it nearby. Otherwise, the vasodilation that occurred from the exercise is going to carry that drug further away. So that is something we can, again, use to our advantage. The same idea as trying to reduce inflammation. You're trying to counteract the vasodilation of exercise um, by using ice packs to constrict those vessels. Now, what if you're trying to encourage the spreading of a, a intramuscular injection, for example? Moving the muscle or massaging the area can spread the drug that is administered in that way. So a couple things to keep in mind here, the GI system and muscles and skin in terms of their blood flow and ways that you could either alter or increase or decrease the spread on absorption and distribution of a drug based on some of those factors. So if you have any questions on anything for this material, I know it was a little bit dense, but please don't hesitate to let me know.